Heavenly Father, we pray that today as we look at this final passage in Hosea that you'll give us a deep sense of your unrelenting love for us and how we should and must respond to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you who know me well will know that I'm a guy who has a big dislike of a type of genre of movies. Any guesses? Any guesses what type of genre of movies I just not like at all? It's the chick flicks. The chick flicks. I mean, it's because they're so predictable, you see. Guy meets girl, they fall in love, but, but the tension in the movie is always something that gets in between them. It could be a dog, uh, a best friend or a mother-in-law. But then, the way the movie progresses is always predictable. The dog dies or the best friend goes away or the mother-in-law dies and then they get back together happily ever after. That's, that's your chick flick, every one of them is like that. <laughs> now, even though I do have a dislike of, of chick flicks, I do have a soft side. There is one story or one movie or one musical that I absolutely love, absolutely love. Not exactly a chick flick, though there is some romance in this story. It's the story Les Miserables. Anyone heard of that? Anyone seen that movie or read or watched it? This is just a show of hands so that I have an idea of how many are familiar with that. Les Miserables. Okay, good. Well, in this story, it's a story set in the 1800s French Revolution. We watched this um, several years ago in the cinemas and we also watched this when there was a, a show, a play in Melbourne just last year. Excellent story, not because of the romance but because of the many, many Christian themes throughout the story. If you've seen the story, if you've watched the movie or seen the play or the musical, you have seen and picked up all these Christian themes throughout it. You know, there's the ugliness of sin and hopelessness seen in this girl's life, Fantine's life. And then there's the legalism of the police officer, Javert. I mean, that's my French for you, Javert. And of course there's the generosity and grace shown by this bishop who expressed grace and, and sympathy and care for this criminal. Now one of the big themes in this story, in this uh, movie or musical, surrounds or is centred on the life of the main character, Jean Valjean. He was a prisoner uh, allowed to go off on parole couldn't really find work, found it hard to find work, was poor, was hungry, was pretty much left for dead. But then this bishop sees him, takes him in, feeds him, provides for him. That's the generosity, the grace of this bishop. Now Jean Valjean, he thought this night, this night he was taken in, provided a bed and food. He thought, this is my opportunity to steal some silver from this bishop. And so that was what he did. That night he, he, he got up, took, took the silver and off he went. But then of course he was caught by some police officers. They dragged him back to this bishop. Now what should this bishop have done? Now this bishop could have, he could have said, well that's my silver, he stole from me and he is responsible. Throw him back into jail. But you know what this bishop did? He said, you in fact forgot to take the best of the silver and he took out two silver candlesticks 
These are for you. And so he said to the police officer, let him go. He is free. And then he said these words. In fact, he sang these words. Uh, Yvonne tried to get me to sing it tonight so that she can laugh at me, so I won't do that. But he said these words, profound words, the lyrics of this musical, just so beautiful. Remember this, my brother, this bishop saying to Jean Valjean, see in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. And so this bishop is declaring to him, you've experienced grace. You've experienced mercy. Now what did Valjean do? He experienced this kindness, this grace, this mercy. Well, when you see this story, when you watch it, when you read of it, he's internally battling with God, in fact. He's he's trying to work out, who am I? What must I do? But then he recognises that he is a sinner. He is a sinner in need of the mercy of God. And his life was changed from that moment on. And the rest of the story is the life of his story in how he repented, how he turned from his old ways to his new way. And so in this story we see genuine repentance. One of the great themes of that story. He turned from his old ways of stealing, stealing bread, stealing silver, to turning to God. And his response, his life after that, reflected that change. You see, that's the change you expect in any repentance. A turning away from your old life and then turning to God. Turning from your old ways and then turning to live God's new way. That is genuine repentance. And that's what you expect from all the people of God. That they would do that. Turn from their old ways, from their idols and turn to God. And that's what you expect from the people of Israel. Now what did the people of Israel do? What were they like? I mean they've experienced God's grace and mercy. God delivered them out of slavery from Egypt, brought them through the desert, gave them the promised land. They experienced the grace and mercy of God. They should have turned back to God. But what did they do? Now just reflect back to last week, chapter 6 of Hosea. Remember that? That was the people of Israel. The people of Israel, they, they, they were calling the people of Israel back to God. They sang a song, let's turn back to God, let's, let's return back to God. But do you remember how God responded to their song? God, in a sense, dismissed their song as inadequate. That you're coming back to me just to use me. They came back with bad motives, bad intentions. You're coming back just, just with these petty offerings and sacrifices with your lip service, I mean your bulls and your sacrifices, they mean nothing to me. I see right into your heart. You see, God's in a sense thinking, you can't buy my forgiveness, you can't buy my love by your petty sacrifices. And so in the key verse from last week, I desire mercy and not sacrifices. I desire mercy. God desires to show mercy, not your petty sacrifices. Now that was chapter 6. Today we're looking at chapter 14. Now, we're we're in a sense not going into detail from chapter 7 to 13. But chapter 13, 7 to 13, it's really God continually expressing his dissatisfaction at the fickleness of the love of his people, of the loyalty of his people. He's he's displeased with them. 
he, he expresses his anger at their idolatry. They continue to be idolatrous. And he expresses his, his judgment on them. He pronounces his judgment upon them. And so some of the key verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, do not rejoice. Do not rejoice. It's in a sense God saying, remove that smug face from your face, that smug smile. You know, oh Israel, do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. And then chapter 13, we read this. Now they sin more and more. I mean, just have to, you just have to try to get that into your head. I mean, these were people who experienced the goodness of God. They know that God is the God of the universe. But yet they're worshipping these gods that are fake, made out of their hands. They prefer the raisin cakes above the God of the universe. And so, verse 2, Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifice and kiss the calf idols. I mean, that summarises how depraved they've become. They're kissing these these carved idols, these calf idols, instead of worshipping the God of the universe. And so that's chapter 7 to 13, a summary of that. Now we come to the final chapter, the final chapter of Hosea. Here there's another call. Last week it was the call of the people to the people. Now Hosea makes his call. Hosea makes his call to the people of Israel. Go back to God in repentance. Go back to God in repentance. He makes a call to the people, calling them. You can't go back with your petty sacrifices and your lip service thinking that God will be pleased with you. You can't do that with God. You can't fool God. You can't, go, uh, you can't buy God's love. This time, come back acknowledging your sins, your guilt. Come back in repentance. And so have a look at Hosea chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. You see the difference between this calling for them to turn back and last week's calling? This one, there's a recognition that they have sinned. They're not returning, presuming on the mercy of God. They're bringing words. They're confessing their sins. And so verse 2, Say to him, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And so he's coming back with a genuineness of heart. I am a sinner in need of your mercy. You see, Hosea is trying to knock some sense into these people. Come back to God on God's terms, not your terms. Don't come back thinking that you can provide whatever you want, offer whatever sacrifice you want and God must be pleased with you. Come back on God's terms and come back now knowing you were fools, admitting you were fools, admitting that you trusted in military power instead of the God of the universe. You have to grasp that. They trusted in the the military power, the horses of their foreign neighbours. And so verse 3, Assyria cannot save us. They finally come to realise that. We will not mount war horses. And more than that, Hosea is getting them now to promise, to vow, to not be so foolish 
and dull and absurd and blind. Vow that you will no longer bow down to the things you've made with your own hands. You see, it's, it's just so silly. They're worshipping what they outrank. It, it, it's silly, isn't it? It's like a commander worshipping those under his care, those he made, in fact, this one. I mean, just think about it. What can these idols do for you? Hosea is trying to knock some sense into them. You made these things. What can they do for you? These are just dumb objects. They're cold. They're dead. They can't care for you. They won't show any compassion. They don't know how to love you. It is only God who is personal. It is God who is only the one who will do those things. And so verse 3, we continue. We will never say again, our gods to what our hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. Now when you think about the foolishness, the absurdity of the Israelites turning away from the God of the universe, the God who made them, the God who provided for them and and worshipping these things they crafted out of their own hands. It's just staggering, isn't it, that thought? Who would do that? But does it surprise you that idols are still worshipped today? Does it surprise you? People, in fact, still do such things. There are still, in fact, billions who around the world would bow their knee and literally worship idols made out of stone or wood or plastic today. In the homes of, of those around this suburb, you might even find shrines to some deity. None of these idols, they will, none of them will show compassion. None of them will show any care or love. In fact, they're out to get you. But yet people still bow down to these things they've crafted with their own hands. But you see, idols are not just man-made things that you craft. There are other man-made idols that many, many today, perhaps, hopefully not, but but perhaps, even some here worship. I mean, what is it that makes it an idol? What are the things that makes an idol an idol? Well, let me ask you these questions. What is it that you love and serve with your whole life? What is it that you're willing to die for? What is it that if you lose it, you'll lose your will to live? I mean, they're they're good questions to work out what the idols are. I mean, they don't have to be physical statues. They can be things like money can be an idol, status, career, body image, And just think about our world today and the society we live in. So many, so, so many, even Christians get sucked into living for these things, serving these things. They're man-made idols. You see, money or career or status, none of them will satisfy. None of them will completely fulfil. I mean, if you lose your job, do you think the money will have compassion on you? If you have a breakup, do you think your career will show any care or love to you? I mean, they have no sense of personality. They cannot love you. They cannot do what God can do. And what they'll do is they'll crush you if you don't get it. If you don't get that money or that status or that career, it will crush you. Or if you do get it, it will just leave you empty and dissatisfied. They will not completely not ultimately satisfy 
nor fulfil like what God can. And this is what the Israelites should have realised. They spent some time with God in their history. They know the power of God. They know the love and concern of God, but yet they've turned their backs on God. And so Hosea here is calling them, come back in repentance. Now remember that, that video clip we watched at the beginning. It's a bit like the repentance seen in that video. The wife in that video clip, she knew she committed a terrible sin, a horrible crime against her husband. She betrayed the trust of her husband. She was unfaithful. And now in that final clip, she discovered that she was in fact became pregnant with another man. It's horrible. Just think about that. That is a terrible thing to happen to anyone. Now, what did she do coming home with, with the results, the pregnancy results? Well, she didn't hide the results, did she? She didn't pretend that there's nothing wrong. She didn't go off and, and have an abortion to cover one wrong with another wrong. She came back, in a sense. You know, there's no words there, but she came back, recognising, I have wronged. I have wronged you. I have hurt you. I have betrayed you. These are the results. Now, he had no doubt whose baby that was. She's coming back. I'm at your mercy. Please have mercy on me. So, what did a husband do in that video? I mean, what would God do if people turned back to God like that? I have wronged you. I have hurt you. I'm now at your mercy. What would God do? Well, what is it that God will always do when people turn back to him? In repentance. Well, what we see now is that God responds with his love song, a song of love. This is a a song, a glorious song of restoration, of abundance, of joy, of peace. So have a look, verse 4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. You see, God promises to refresh them, like the freshness of the morning dew that waters the plants. God will establish them like a strong, firm, unshakable tree and they will be in abundance. They will enjoy an abundance. A picture of the promised land or or the Garden of Eden. And so we see this in the next few verses, verses 5 to 8. We'll read through that now. I'll be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down its roots. His young shoots will grow, his splendour will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Man will dwell again in his shades, he will flourish like the grain, he will blossom like a vine, and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I'm like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. God says to them, You'll be blessed. You'll enjoy this. You have to stay with me. Your fruitfulness comes from me. You see, God doesn't hold back his love when anyone turns back to him in repentance. God showers his love. He showers his care. And the picture here, it's glorious. The nation was without peace, without joy, without hope. But here God reverses it all. You see, it's a picture again of what we saw in that video clip. What did that husband do? when the wife returned with her positive pregnancy test results. 
I mean, he could have ripped it up, you know, chucked it back in her face. Away from me. Get out of here. He could have pulled off his wedding ring and flicked it aside. But what he did was like what God would do. He, without a word, hugged her, took her back, loved her. You see, the, the final image in that, in that uh, video clip, it's the image of that marriage, the wedding ceremony. It's all restored. They're back in relationship. You see, that's what God would do. Anyone who returns to God, that is what God would do. And so God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Come pleading for mercy and you'll get it. This is the love song of God. And so now we come to the end of Hosea. The last verse. The book of Hosea ends with some words of wisdom and in a sense leaves it open. Are you the wise or are you the fool? Are you the discerning or are you the dull? Have a look, verse 9. Who is the wise? He will realise these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. You see, the wise, they're the righteous ones who walk in the Lord's way, whereas the fool remains rebellious against God, turning his back on God. Now, what did the people of Israel do? So, this is Hosea speaking to the people of Israel in that time. What did they end up doing after hearing all of this? What did they do? Did they listen to Hosea? Did they turn back to God in repentance? Did they see from Hosea's love for Gomer how Hosea pursued her and redeemed her? Did they see from that also God's unrelenting love for them? Well, we know what happened with Israel, don't we? We know their history. Now, remember the first week we started this series, we we had that little history lesson, the dates and years. We're going to do that one more time. King David, when did he live? What year was that? Anyone remember? 1,000, good. King David, 1,000. He had a son who who ascended uh, to the throne, his son Solomon. What year was he about? 970, very good. Now, in 922, what happened? What happened? The kingdom was divided. You had the northern kingdom, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, known as Israel or Ephraim or the north, and then you had the south, known as Judah. 922 BC. Okay. Hosea, when did he live? When was he prophesying? What year was that? 750. Anyone? It was about... 750 BC, remember that? 750 BC, so a bit after Solomon's time and after the split of the kingdom. Now, what happened in 722 BC? Yep, the Assyrians destroyed the north. The northern kingdom were completely destroyed. So Hosea was prophesying just before that happened. He was warning them, this is going to happen to you if you do not repent. And then in 722, the north were destroyed. Now, what does that tell us? What did Israel do? Did they repent? Did they repent? They didn't repent, did they? 
after all the warnings of judgment, their repentance was not forthcoming. They remained fools. Remember how Hosea ends. Are you the fool or are you the wise? They remained fools. They remained rebellious. That was their response. But you see, the story of Hosea is only part of a bigger story of the Bible. This is how we are to understand the Old Testament. It's part of a bigger story of God because the call to repentance is not just directed to the nation of Israel. It's not just directed to the northern kingdom, but it's a call to, that is directed to the entire world, to all of us, even today. You see, God sent prophets after prophets after prophets to warn of coming judgment. And what the nation of Israel, what they experienced in being destroyed by the Assyrians, that is nothing compared, compared to the bigger and greater judgment of God that will come upon all people. You see, it's a, a small picture of a bigger picture, a small judgment of a bigger judgment. And that bigger judgment is that all people will one day face, not, not the destruction of your country or nation, but you will face the full wrath of God. It's a picture of that judgment which the Bible proclaims and declares and shouts out to this world. There is a bigger judgment to be afraid of and that is when we face God, we, we give our account and we face his wrath. You see, that, that's a scary thought, isn't it? It's a terrifying thought. For Israel, being destroyed by the Assyrians, that's terrible. Nothing compared to this. And it's worth once in a while reflecting on how serious that is. I don't think we, we perceive how terrible, how frightening it is to, to face God without anyone to stand in front of us, without anyone to redeem us, without anyone to take our place. That is a frightening thing, to bear the full wrath of God. Now, often I suspect for us, for many of us who are, who are younger in age, we don't reflect about this until we, we are confronted by death. Now, 11 days ago, I conducted a funeral for a 92-year-old lady. A small funeral out in Box Hill. There were Christians there and non-Christians, but I, I did not know who were who. Now, the lady who passed away did not know whether she was a Christian or not, but I wanted to make sure that at this funeral service that I do not leave people walking away with a warm, fuzzy feeling just because. Did not want them to walk away feeling that way. I want them to be confronted by, by the horror of death. But more than that, confronted by what awaits everyone, we'll have to all give account. And so at that funeral, in the wisdom God has granted me, this was what I said at the committal. You know, at the committal, when you commit the body to the ground, we, I said, we now commit her body to be cremated, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, trusting in the mercy of the Almighty God. And then I said this, to whom we shall all give an account. Before my benediction, that was the last word, I want them to remember, we'll all have to give account to this God. And that is frightening. If you are to stand before God without anyone taking your place, without anyone taking your punishment, that is a terrifying thing far worse than what Israel experienced. We all will have to give account. So what do we do? Well, we continue to read the story of God. We open up the pages of the New Testament and then what do we find? 
Well, God didn't send more and more prophets, prophets after prophets, warning this world of coming judgment. What did God do? God this time sent his only son, Jesus Christ. Now in Mark, the gospel, Jesus came and what did he do? He proclaimed this, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, repent and believe the good news. Your time to turn back to God is now. Repent and believe the good news. Come and turn back to God. Not thinking that you'll win your way to heaven. Not thinking that you can buy God's love and buy God's forgiveness by how good I've been. Repent. Turn back to God. I am at your mercy. I mean, this has been the Christian message since the first Christmas. Calling everyone, calling this world to repentance. Turn away from your idols, your old way of life. Turn to God and live the new way of life. Don't claim to be without sin because you're just fooling yourself, like what we read in our first passage. You're deceiving yourself. But if you confess your sin, God is faithful and he will forgive you. And so tonight, I do have some questions to you. If you are here tonight, you are not a Christian. You're quite clear that you don't belong to this community of believers. You're, you're still exploring Christianity. We are so glad that you are here, exploring, thinking and, and meditating on what the Bible says. We are glad you are here. But if you've been exploring Christianity for a while and it makes sense to you that there is a personal God, the God of the universe who loves you, who sent his son, who called you to repent, who came to redeem you, with his life, who died on the cross for you and who was raised on a third, third day for you to promise you eternal life. If you know that, if you understand that, then it's time, isn't it? It's time to repent. It's time to turn back to God. I mean, the Israelites in the northern kingdom, Hosea came about 750. They were destroyed in 722. They had, you know, 20 odd years. You have no idea how long you'll have to respond. When 722 came, they lost their chance. You have no idea how long you have. If you understand the gospel, it's time to turn back. It's time to turn back. And what do you say to God? We say three things. This is what I try to explain when we had our Christianity Explored course. At the end, we prayed this prayer. Say three things. Sorry, thank you and please. Sorry, Thank you and please. Sorry, I acknowledge I am unworthy. I'm a broken person. I'm a sinner. I've been in rebellion against you my whole life. I I love these idols and I've hurt you. Sorry. But thank you because of your son who came, who calls for repentance, who died for me, who was raised to grant me eternal life. Thank you. And thirdly, please, please help me now live as your disciple. Help me now live the new life you have purchased for me. It's a bit like in that, in that story of Les Miserables. Jean Valjean, after he experienced grace and mercy, not just from the bishop but from God, he went on to live the life of an honest man. He took upon himself to raise this girl who, who was not his, 
adopted her, loved her, and he pretty much expended his whole life caring for her, protecting her. Now, he was a changed man, no longer a thief, no longer stealing, but a changed man because he experienced grace and mercy and his repentance was genuine. He even, he even tried to show mercy and grace, and he did, in fact, to a police officer who wanted his life. And so if you are not a believer, three things you say to God. Sorry, thank you and please. Now for the rest of you who consider yourself a Christian, this is also for you. I mean, they're the same three things we say throughout our life, isn't it? Sorry, thank you and please. And so for you who are Christians, who consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, You've been a Christian for a while now or you might have been a recent Christian. It's time for you to also reflect on your life, what you do, what you have done. Are there things in your life that you're just so disgusted of, ashamed of? Are there things that you're deeply guilty of? Are there things that you hope no one will find out? Is your life at church, the same as your life at home. This is for the Christians, for you to reflect. And I wonder if there are some of us here who live and lead a double life. We are upright in public, but downright depraved in private. Is that you? Well, if that is you, there's no fooling God. You might fool us, you might even fool yourself. There is no fooling God, but if that is you, Sins become habitual. Guilt is so burdensome. What do you do? Sorry, thank you, please. Repent. Turn back to God. Turn back to God in repentance. Sorry, thank you, please. You see, in the story, the bishop purchased the life of Jean Valjean for God. In the real story, Jesus purchased us for God by his death on the cross. And so we can live with this confidence, the confidence that John Newton had. He said this, I am not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man I wish to be. And I'm not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be. You see, if you are a Christian, there must be a difference. There must be a changed life that you are living and pursuing and striving for. Now in the story again, Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, in the last scene now, he's in the face of death. It's a beautiful scene, really beautiful. I mean, it brought a tear to Yvonne's eyes, not mine. <laughs> he's exhausted his life, risked his life, used his life loving and caring for this adopted daughter, Cosette. And now in the face of death, he sings these final words to God, in fact. He says, Forgive me all my trespasses and take me to your glory. He knows that's the grounds of his acceptance before God. Not the life, not the changed life he lived, not how well he took care of Cosette, not the sacrifices he made for her, not the good things he did. The grounds of his acceptance is really falling at the, at his, on his knees and falling at the mercy of God. You know, that's comfort for all who turn to God in repentance. The future is glory. You know, that's a remarkable story, isn't it? Wonderful story. 
But it's not real. Your life is real. Your life is real. Jesus proclaimed, repent and believe the good news. Will you and have you? Let me pray that that might be. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing love, your unrelenting love, that you would pursue us in Christ, that you would love us in Christ, that you would in your Son even die for us. And so we praise you. Help us to see this and help us to respond as we must, to repent, fall on our knees in need of your mercy. And so we pray, Lord, that this might be the case for all of us here tonight. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.